Welcome to Behind the Edit, a podcast that peeks behind the scenes and discusses the unexpected and often very personal victories, stumbles and detours on a path to building a creative brand and business. I'm your host, Christine Mankies, creative pioneer, award-winning photographer, founder of The Pretty Blog, editor, visual storyteller, problem solver, recovering workaholic, mom and dynamic dot connector. Over the next few months, I'll be sitting down with South African multifaceted designers and entrepreneurs to uncover their unique and at times zigzag journeys to build what seems like a perfectly edited brand. Today's guest is one of South Africa's capsule wardrobe advocates, fashion designer, creative director, and all-round fun human being, Hannah Lavery. From starting a fashion brand straight out of design school to taking calculated risks, to grow incrementally, Hannah's been guided by two simple truths, taking things slow and working hard. And it has most certainly paid off. Over the past nine years, she's had a few monumental moments. In 2019, Meghan Markle wore her limited edition tinsel white dress during a visit to Johannesburg. And in 2020, she was crowned one of NetBank's small business winners. Having started by studying law, dipping her toes into the world of theatre and finally redirecting her path towards fashion. Hannah's career track has been zigzagged and unconventional. Something we're used to here at Behind the Edit. But what makes this brand unique is that it lives outside of seasons and empowers women to build their wardrobes one staple at a time. Once again, in true Hannah style, this ethos is promoting a slower approach to consumption. But what stands out in her journey is her willingness to ask for help and guidance when making pivotal decisions, a quality I think we can all learn from. Welcome, Hannah. I think when I... <laughs> Hannah has um, more uh, experience in the podcast um, <laughs> one world. More. <laughs> one, one more. more. She's one ahead of me. <laughs> but this morning when I was thinking about like where did I actually come across your brand for the first time there's obviously been a lot of touch points with pretty blog and with the history of us building online and you as well the creative space has kind of you know morphed our stories here and there we've touch point but mm. I remember the day that I visited Alexia from Plomp Ceramics in that studio space you were in this huge like collaborative space we're still there you're still there we're still there yeah okay and I remember visiting her there and just being so curious about all the other creatives in that space. And from a very young age, I've always been interested in small business. And I grew up as a person with entrepreneurial drive. But I remember, I think it was the first time we met in person. Yeah. And I walked over to you and you showed me your production line. And I was inspired by all the black clothing that was hanging there. <laughs> Because I think at that time I only had black and white clothing in my cupboard. Well, far off for our whole range. <laughs> but I like the neutral side of <laughs> clothing space. I think that's also why I was naturally drawn to your brand. But yeah, just tell us a little bit about, I think you definitely well positioned in terms of our current situation with lockdown having happened over quite a few months and you being well known as a comfy, if I could say, clothing range. Like, I know you mentioned the combo between power suit and pajamas. And I was like, that is my vibe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting is that we haven't been a super fast growing business and we've been around for longer than people realize. I think people always expect me to say, oh, four or five years, which is, I think, when a lot of people discovered us, but we're actually in our ninth year. Um, yeah, so it's been quite a while, but I just started really slowly. Like I had another job and I was working at the market and it was very slow and very small. So I think by the time that you met me there at that studio, there was quite a few years in actually, like we had been around for a while. I'd probably been working full time on the brand for like maybe a year and a half and two years even before that part-time yeah, so it hasn't been like this sort of big, I exploded with a brand into the, into the industry. Because I didn't actually have a plan, if you know what I mean. I just sort of started straight after university. So you just kind of fall into it and you're like, 
let's see what's going to happen tomorrow. Or so, so <laughs> if I you had, say you didn't have a plan, what do you mean? <laughs> so I had studied law, at UCT law and philosophy, and I thought that I was going to do my honours in philosophy once I realised I wouldn't have made a very competitive lawyer. <laughs> uh, and then I, I actually went to a therapist in my final year of law where I was quite unhappy for various reasons. And I just always thought, because I come from a family of like, my sister's a Rhodes Scholar and my other sister did two degrees in three years, you know, very sort of academic. I just always had thought that I would do something academic and I was good at academics and that was the path that I was going to go on. Um, oh, but I also at one point wanted to be an actress, so there was definitely some like, social. <laughs> Lawyer and actress sounds like uh, a great combo. <laughs> I, I started with theatre and philosophy and then moved to law and philosophy after a gap year. That whole first confused time is a bit of a story. But then afterwards, I sort of decided that I wanted to go into something creative, but I didn't want to like totally put my life at risk and go into something creative that had no possibility of being a real career. <laughs> so I actually chose fashion design through like a process of elimination with my psychologist, like going like, cool, photography, mm, what do you think about this? Uh, graphic design, what do you think about this? You know, I went through like a process of elimination. Retroactively, it makes quite a lot of sense that I chose fashion. If you look at sort of my childhood and different experiences that I have now, it makes sense. But at the time, it felt like I was picking quite randomly. But I sort of chose it because you can go into fashion and you can have a corporate career. You can have a very successful corporate career in South Africa. And I didn't want to just go into a, into a super risky, creative path, but I wanted to try it for once. So then I chose that. And then when I finished studying, I sort of got to this point where I was like either going to apply to be a buyer or really go into the corporate side. And then my thinking was, if I've left law and I've left the security of that, why would then I just go and work in corporate? Like I could have just been a lawyer then. And at the time I was working with another brand selling her clothing on the weekend at the Biscuit Mall. And she was opening a shop on Clove Street. This is Take Care. And she had come to see my show and she was like, I'm opening a store in two weeks time. Do you want to stock it? And yeah, that was the start. So there was really no plan. We just sort of started. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that is so cool. Hannah, so it sounds like you come from quite a risk-averse family, I'd say. <laughs> yep. Uh-huh. <laughs> and you, you were obviously drawn to the more risky side, I'd say, but you were still maybe a bit scared of it. But it seems like as you made the first step, you were kind of drawn to risk more and more. Don't you think that risk plays a huge part in building a business? Or how do you approach it? It does. I wouldn't describe myself as being very risk tolerant. I think I am actually quite risk averse. I had a desire to go into something creative and a necessary part of that was taking risk. Mm -hmm. That being said, I don't think I would have done it had I not had the support of like going to see somebody that was like mm -hmm. a professional at convincing somebody of something. <laughs> but at the same time, I suppose I did take some risk. And, and the entire time that I have grown my business, I have taken risk, but I wouldn't describe myself as very risk tolerant, actually. You think it's more considered. So it might seem risky to other people, but actually there's a lot of thought that goes into what you do and how you do things. Is that how you approach it? Yeah, it's part of the reason why I think that I grew quite slowly, that I wasn't just throwing everything in. I kept a part-time job for the first year and a half of my career. It's part of me that's made me quite considered and calculated. So at every point that I did a new store, went into a new space, I would always do break-even analysis and really look at what the cost would be, how much it would impact me if it had to fail. Um, yeah, so... So risk analysis is part of your process. You're not the type of creative that goes, oh my goodness, this is exciting, naively jumps into anything, yeah. all like fluffy and fancy and you kind of fall flat on your face. That's, yes. that's not you. <laughs> no. And I think that also was because I had already studied, I had gone on a gap year, I had then studied again. So I had a law and philosophy undergraduate, a fashion diploma, and I was 25 and I was starting a business, it's not the time that you want to start something and then just fall on your face two years later, like when you're 27. You know, like I, I think I had more at 
mistake. And I really wanted to make it work. And if I had to not make it work, I would have gone into like a buying program at the age of 27, 28, and then be starting from scratch. So I do think that I had more at stake and I needed to really make things work. I'd just gone through a five-year breakup. So I was like devastated when I first started my business. And also for the first time, I had to like live on my own and sort of really like make myself, you know, be able to pay the rent. <laughs> to just adults in some way <laughs> to just become a bit more independent <laughs> and it was terrifying <laughs> but no. there's a lot of moments in building a business that I think is very terrifying right and mm. let's just go back into the whirlwind of you as a 25 year old like I'm very curious to know what that looked like <laughs> <laughs> sounds very interesting <laughs> It was very funny. So post breakup, let's just not go there. They, but <laughs> what is the rest of the I was just saying that I was like the first clothes that I sent out into <laughs> take in Adrian Kate is that shop that was on Clough Street. So some of it I was sewing in my mom's house in Hart Bay and uh, like just crying into the clothes. <laughs> so they actually had my tears on them. <laughs> so sad that, 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 is, that is like the best story not that I'm excited about your tears but the fact that your tears were literally part of the product that you sent out I think a lot of business owners have the same story they might not just say it yeah those definitely I remember the exact garment that I was making that has the tears and if I had to ever see them again I'd, I would know you wore my tears <laughs> <laughs> but on the topic of tears, I think there's probably a lot of tears as part of growing a business. Like, are you quite an emotional person or are you quite level-headed when it comes to, like, building a business? What are you like on a day-to-day -day basis? <laughs> I have no idea. I wish I could have my team here to be like, this is what you actually like. I think of myself as quite level-headed and I think of myself as quite emotional, both at the same time, one and the other. Um, when I'm making decisions, I, I, I think that in general, I'm quite a logical person. I'm quite calculated when it comes to my business decisions, but I'm also quite emotional and sensitive, usually about my own sort of confidence in my abilities. And that's where sort of my emotionalness will really get me down. I get quite emotionally involved in my staff and with my team, which I think is also a good thing a lot of the time. But I think if you had to watch me work, you would think that I'm quite logical and methodical and I'm making decisions quite easily on that train. But a lot of what I do is sort of fed by the emotional undercurrents. <laughs> um, for instance, during this time now when COVID hit, it's so funny how my response was. COVID hit and I had this moment for the first time since I started my business where I was like, wow, I could lose it, you know? Because wow. usually I have been quite careful, as I've been saying, and quite mm. risk averse. So I will always know that I've got money saved, that I've got a safety blanket, that I've got backups here and there and that I've spread myself wide enough that if this fails and something else will carry us and for the first time this felt like something that was out of my control that could actually get us out of business this is right in the beginning and it's so funny like I felt like other businesses around me like they were all responding quickly 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 and I just kept finding myself in my bed <laughs> under the covers sort of silently weeping but <laughs> to the moment I think five weeks in my son was 14 months old and my husband found me in the fetus position in, in the garage on a yoga mat <laughs> crying my heart out with pumping music in the background he thought I was doing a workout and there I was sobbing my heart out and I think we all probably had a moment like that where yeah, something um... just hit us really really hard whether that was a sense of insecurity or a sense of loss or a sense of just really not understanding what is going on around mm. us or that fear that kind of kicked in. It was really tangible all over that we have no idea what this thing is going to do. You know, it was like a beast yeah. roaming around in the streets and 
everyone, like you say, you get responders and then you get people that just retract and try and process. <laughs> and yeah. Which I think is also very much part of our character as human beings. And mm. that is seen in our businesses. And you just mentioned that you were looking at all the response around you and you probably felt that, okay, but what am I doing? I'm not responding. I'm like <laughs> having a little moment <laughs> like behind my pillow. Yeah. But I'm sure that that is also your character and your own personal journey that also connects to your brand. And yeah. that's why you guys are unique. You have your and own it's brand my process. I don't respond quickly. I had to sort of just realize like, this is what I need to do. I need to just sort of cocoon. I call it my cocoon phase where I need to just sort of feel upset, feel the sort of fear of it, feel a bit shocked into freezing into sort of freeze frame and just let myself be there for a little bit. And then very quickly after that, I can come out and I can respond, which I did. But I did that sort of by like reaching out. I was seeing somebody that is like a psychologist and a business coach. And she was just saying, well, so just reach out. Like nobody else has been through a global pandemic, not any other business owner. You know, exactly. maybe, maybe they look like they're doing really well and they know what they're doing, but literally none of us have any data to draw from. And because I usually like to make decisions with information. So in the past, I had felt like after a few years of my business, between the sort of five and seven year mark, I had gotten to the point where I had enough historical data to be able to make informed decisions looking forward. And this knocked that out. This mm. went, okay, now all of your historical data is no longer relevant because that was before there was this crazy pandemic going on. So there was nothing to use to like create an informed decision. And it really did freak me out. Um, but during the period where I was coming out of my cocoon phase, I really just put myself out there, which is very scary for me, and just phoned all the people that I knew that had similar size business to me and said, what are you doing? What are you doing with your staff? What are you doing with tours? What are you doing with your rentals? What are you doing? Just what are your strategies? And that was super useful. I mean, two of the people that I spoke to was Tambara and Kat from Bishalik <laughs> and Margot Molyneux and just sort of started phoning people and just being like, hey. <laughs> The idea of reaching out is scary as well, right? Mm. But the more you do it, it's it's like a muscle that you exercise. It's like the first time you put yourself out there on social media. And I know you are particularly fond of like being the face of your brand. (laughs) I know that this is just sound only. You can't see the visuals, but if you can see the face right now, it's really. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But you did mention to me that it's, something people respond to and people know that there's a person and there's people behind your brand and there's authenticity and there's a value system and people tap into that and we've seen on our social media as well you know people want to respond to people there's been a shift there's been a shift and in some way I feel like also the pandemic has been a leveler in many ways and forms Mm -hmm. And maybe prior to this, you wouldn't have reached out. You wouldn't have said, listen, I'm totally. actually freaking out here. Yeah? Um, I mean, for me, as somebody that isn't very risk tolerant and I like to be able to predict things, it was the biggest sigh of relief of my life to get to the point that we had five years of the business behind us, that we could predict things, that we knew exactly what was sort of going to come up. But I actually had gotten into a phase where I don't think that I would have grown as much had risk not been forced on me and that risk was COVID happening and it was forced on me and actually what I've realized after this is that I actually respond quite well in those times and I need little pressure I need a little bit of risk and I actually have realized that part of my business strategy is going to have to be creating risk for myself that I can respond to because otherwise I will just go oh I want to be able to stay I want to be able to predict I want to be able to know where you are but you don't grow in that space. I think that's very valuable. It's like you almost get onto this trajectory of, I got this, like autopilot. Things are working. Yes. You know, we've got our seasonal designs yes. coming out, like change up a color <laughs> here and there, you know, yeah. <laughs> kind of, this is easy. Yeah. And what's so funny is that once I came out of my cocoon, that was one of my favorite times in my business. We were rethinking everything because all of a sudden we realized we know who we are. I know who the brand is. My employees know who the brand is, but... It wasn't visible anywhere. We would get our customers coming into stores or at markets or shows that we do, and there we have it down. But when we looked online, we just realized like nothing matched up. It really just wasn't the same. And there wasn't any of us in our online presence, which was a time of incredible self-discovery of the brand. 
And we spend so much time brainstorming exactly who we are and what we stand for. And it was quite surprising what came out of that. Like for so many years, building a business, especially building a business sort of feeling like not quite as creative as other people, not quite as avant-garde as other people, you know, just always feeling a little bit less of a creative than other creatives and sort of not wanting to put myself too much into the brand so that people would see that. What I realized eventually during this time and workshopping our brand is that it is who we are. We're not as creative. We're not pushing the boundaries. We are creating clothing that is functional. We're not taking ourselves too seriously. We're not calling fashion the answer to a million of life's problems. We're saying this is a top. And this top <laughs> is useful because you can wear this top with this pair of pants. <laughs> or that pair of pants. And it's useful in your everyday life. And that was quite lovely. So now we've been able to put humor into our brand and we've been able to put the sort of feeling of not taking ourselves seriously into the brand and be able to actually share that through our social medias, through our e-commerce. So it was quite a transformation period, this lockdown period, which was unexpected at the time, in the beginning. I'm having a little giggle here because your brand evolution sounds like me. It's like... <laughs> quite serious, not putting yourself out there too much. Like, you know, don't want to put the word boring out there, but, <laughs> you know, which is me. And like mid-30s, moving on to 40, I'm like, oh, this is who I am. Like, I just <laughs> can be who I am. <laughs> I think your brand is just really maturing. Yeah. <laughs> like you become comfortable with who you are. And it seems like you've known that for a long time. But I think it's such an amazing process to take that and then visually translate that, whether that's words, whether that's visuals. Mm. It's an amazing process. Yeah. It's so funny. It's been really incredible. There's been so many years where we were trying to be taken seriously, you know, and now we are taken seriously and now we're <laughs> trying to be not taken too seriously. <laughs> Again, it sounds like me. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Tell me a bit more about the, the creative process of you obviously designing clothes. I'm assuming you're the creative director. And a few weeks ago when we had our Zoom call, had like a really fun <laughs> encounter <laughs> with your team <laughs> in the studio where they did a little dance behind you with the new pants <laughs> that's coming. I don't know if it's yes. out yet. <laughs> but I'm curious to know a bit more about that process of designing yeah, how do you do that as a team and what's your role and how does it actually unfold into physical product going onto shelf or going into the e-com store? So I am creative, but I'm not artistic in any way. I cannot draw anything. It's really <laughs> terrible. If you see my handwriting, it's awful. I'm just, I just can't draw anything. So I design and I have usually always designed by making a pattern. That's the way my brain thinks. It thinks in flat patterns and I can make it up. And so as I'm making the pattern, I will often tweak the design and the design sort of just mulls around in my head, probably similar to my cocoon phase. It's sort <laughs> of just swirling around my head for a while and then eventually I'm just ready to do it and I just do it in a pattern. And then we make a mock-up. And a lot of where that comes from is that we try and create a complete range that has everything that you need in it at all times. I don't know if people know the brand, but we don't really launch like a summer range, a winter range. The whole idea is that the range is sort of organically updating, that you can buy something today and you can pair it with a pair of shorts that you bought two years ago. And that will also go with a jacket that you buy in two years time. So it's meant to be sort of... Um, not full ranges that come out. So very often we will know, we will just, my staff will tell me, okay, we don't have enough tops, you've got too many pants, so you need to make a top. And I won't like really think about it too much, but something will come to me at some point and then I'll make a pattern. And then a lot of the designing and the tweaking, which we find really <laughs> funny and also very important, is in the process of while we're making mock-ups and tweaking the fit, Somebody in the studio usually has to wear it for a day or two and then we'll sort of watch them and if they're like picking at one side um, or they're tripping over the length or if it's too tight on them, that's sort of where we get the real value, I think, of our clothing is that we really tweak the comfort, the versatility. We try it on different body shapes. We see how you can wear it differently for your body shape. And that's the fun part to me. That's where we get a design that goes from a nice pair of pants to like a very valuable pair of pants that's in your wardrobe, you know? 
Yes. <laughs> Can I please just have everything? <laughs> I'm very much the capsule wardrobe girl. And I think that was what drew me to your brand is the fact that it's versatile. You can dress it up. You can dress it down. Mm. I remember when I was pregnant with AD, it was also like I didn't really get the whole um, maternity wardrobe thing. <laughs> but your body is telling you you need bigger clothes. So <laughs> I was like, what does Hannah have in her <laughs> on her rails? Um, and... Yeah, like even after, you know, it's still something I can tuck in and dress up. And I think that for me is a very cool part of like what you guys do. I'm sure it did really well within lockdown because it's so comfortable. Yeah, um, definitely. Absolutely. (laughs) It's just what we've always sort of been advertising, a sort of home lounge weary type of clothing that you can wear out. Like one of our most popular pants are the Emma pants. They're just a pair of tracksuit pants, but made in linen. So you can wear them out. I have those. I definitely have those. (laughs) (laughs) And tell me a bit about the people behind this process. And you're talking about your team often. Mm. Um, Like who are these people and what are their roles in your creations? (laughs) It's very cool. Our team has grown a lot over the years and it's wonderful to see that we had very low sort of staff turnover. We've had the same people with us most of the time. My mom works with me, which is very nice. That's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I've had pretty much the same team of seamstresses we've added here and there for many years. Patricia and her daughter Leanne have been with me since the very first day in 2012. So they have been part of the team the entire time. So Patricia will make all my samples for me and we will work quite closely together on getting the sort of original garment of sample, right? Um, so I've got a whole team in the factory. Um, I think the first person that I hired was Mubina, who <laughs> who worked at the watershed. Um, and the watershed was like my first, like, okay, now we're a real business, you know, <laughs> when we took the watershed, which was terrifying because it was open seven days a week, which is a lot for somebody that had only just been working at like the biscuit mall on the Saturday. Um, and she is still in our company and now she runs our whole website. She's knows how to code now. She's amazing. It's all changed. <laughs> um, yeah, which is now a huge part of our business after lockdown. Now e-commerce, she's a whole department now. Um, so her and then Isabel runs my production team, the whole studio and sort of lays with all the shops. And then we have our two shop managers in Cape Town. You mentioned, um, what was the lady that was there for such a long time? Patricia. Patricia. Yes. I know that you mentioned her in an interview that I actually listened. Okay. um, And it was so interesting to me what you mentioned, that the fact that you can actually tap into a whole world of teachings of someone that comes with such incredible like history and talent in other businesses. And I think for creative entrepreneurs, that's always very scary because you're kind of like at the f- forefront, you have to make everything happen. But many times we forget that there are so many mentors around us and actually available to our disposal. Like, tell us a little bit about your journey from a mentorship point of view. Do you have mentors as part of your life and also your team? Like, what do you learn from them? So mentorship, I think it's very valuable to say that this is the only job I've ever had. I've never really had another job except for like a small part-time job. I've never worked in corporate. So this is the only experience that I've ever had. (laughs) Um, So there's a lot of gaps in my knowledge. Um, But within my team, learning from my staff, I mean, my factory staff, the, the seamstresses in my team, and my cutter, my ironers, they have all just been working for years and years and years, decades and decades. They're much older than me. They know a lot. They have taught me everything that I know about the production side, and I still know very little. Um, And I just sort of have always trusted them to sort of lead that whole side of production. And so often when I'm making a pattern, for example, I will go and I'll say, okay, cool, what is the best way for me to make this so that you can do it as quickly and easily as possible when it's on the production line? And I haven't had one single mentor that has been leading my career. But I think what's very valuable to say is like, I started out working at the Biscuit Mall where you're surrounded by all the other designers that are starting out. And that sort of conversation between people that are all in the same boat is incredibly useful. And putting yourself in those positions. I mean, for years and years and years, I think for the first four years, I worked myself at the Biscuit Mall. 
And some people used to say to me, like, why are you doing this? And I would say, oh, obviously I sell my own product better than anybody else. But also those conversations, those tips, those hints, those things that you get from those people are really invaluable. And I still get that very often when I like work at Karma's, for instance, and I'll go to Karma's and I'll work myself and I will see my clothing on different bodies. I will get so much information from just being around my customers physically and seeing how the clothes work and don't work. But then on top of that, also from the other designers. So, I mean, that is where I really feel like I've learned so much. I'll often stay with a bunch of the other designers and we will drink wine after a day's work and we will talk about our different techniques, where we buy from our suppliers. And that is a network that is so valuable. I can't even explain it. Yeah, I think it takes a certain amount of openness to mm-hmm. open up yourself also to questions, um, but also to be able to just reach out and go like, hey, how do you approach this? Or mm-hmm. do you feel like this week's market was not as busy as usual? And I think it does take a certain amount of maturity to do that. But I think the more comfortable we become with reaching out to other people, yeah, you actually get so much from it. You do. And I actually need to remember this. I was having a conversation with a few of the people that I was speaking to Diva from Naira Salt and Michelle Ludic and Hank. And we were saying like, it's very easy to say like, yes, reach out all the time and just put yourself out there. And it's not always, and it's not with everyone. Mm-hmm. You do have to build relationships and figure out who you can trust, figure out 100%. who the people are, because it's not always a two-way street. And sometimes you can put yourself out there and people don't respond well, or they don't give you back information. They just take information. <laughs> it's not everyone. I'm not saying that all creative entrepreneurs are just an open book and we're all there to support but it's not like that it really isn't like that would just be unrealistic about humans but you can with a little bit of testing and trial and error go and find your support group and those people you know they're in a circle then they're your circle of trust I think that's just life in general Mm. right I always think back on I was a very serious teenager I was a very serious student and I didn't really have the very like party vibe life. I was just always super serious. (laughs) But also through my journey of being interested in building businesses, I've also realized, like you say, like who can you trust? Who can't you trust? Building relationships with people that have a similar value system to yourself. And I think that's just like with friendships in general, like we go to a school and you kind of get forced to be friends with people in your class. Mm -hmm. And then you go to high school and a similar system and you kind of like move on and you go to varsity or some tertiary education and the circle becomes bigger and the pond of fish become bigger and you can kind of pick kind of, oh, I can relate to this person. And I think that's also something we learned with the businesses we built. We've always been very aware of the fact that we are not for everyone. And I think that's something people need to learn in their business because if you are choosing a niche and if you're choosing a certain target market, you also have to be okay with the fact that not everyone is going to agree with you and that everyone isn't going to love your product. And maybe the girl that is the super fashion forward one is not necessarily going to be your customer, but that's, that's okay. okay. That's okay. You know, as we get older, we're like, it is okay. It doesn't seem okay at some point. And then it does. All of a sudden you're like, oh, well, that's okay. So... You've mentioned that you've put quite a lot of effort into your e-commerce side of things, but you also have a brick and mortar store. And I'd love to chat about the journey of like deciding to do something physical and obviously the risks and the costs that come with that Mm. and also the journey of what that was like. And then maybe we can jump more to the e-com side because I think it's so different, but there are definitely similarities and I'd love to get your view on it. Yeah, they are very different. So the decision to go into sort of bricks and mortar store in the beginning was my first decision was at the watershed, which didn't feel that risky because obviously, I mean, the waterfront has done an amazing thing there with the watershed by keeping the costs low for designers. There's quite low barriers to entry there. And that was very scary in the beginning. I did a lot of spreadsheets figuring out (laughs) how much it would cost me if we only sold one thing a month or two things. Anyway, I mean, the first year was so hard, it almost killed us um, because no one in Cape Town knew where it was, no tourists knew where it was, but then it really picked up and then we just had the full access to the waterfronts for traffic, which is incredible. Even if you get 1% of the waterfronts for traffic, you're getting a lot of people. 
that was amazing. Deciding to create a space in Parkhurst was a much bigger decision that had really been informed by many, many years of doing commas and handmade contemporary and Glenshiel and all the markets that I do up in Joburg and really feeling like a actual demand from our Joburg clients that they wanted a space that they could access all year round. And it's quite funny that I spent quite a long time just sort of wandering around Joburg, going to a coffee shop, yeah, going to a coffee shop, yeah, I must have looked like such a creep. <laughs> <laughs> just sitting around yeah. asking many, many customers at every show that I did, like, where should we go? Where should we be? And it's so funny, a few years before that, I would have sworn to you I would never open my own space because I just really sort of thought I wasn't like the person that was cut out to open a boutique and that I would always just stock other people's shops. Um, but I think as our brand developed into what it is today, which is all based on neutrals, all based on classics, it sort of became quite clear that without one place where I could say exactly who we are, where I could create our brand identity 100% just us, it was never going to be clear to anybody 100% what we were and who we were. And I just thought the only way to really do that was to have a space that the entire space like represented that ethos or who we were or our aesthetic. So that was the decision to do Parkhurst. And it really did change the game. It was amazing to have a space that was just completely mine. And it actually like developed who we were because all of a sudden we were like now living up to the space that we created um it was very fun I mean part of what you're saying about like having a team as well I think my team was also very excited to have a space like that I don't think I would have done it if I had just hired Isabel and without sort of her support and her sort of like encouragement and saying yes okay I've got this back here you can go and do that we wouldn't have done it so it was not really good timing and then once we had it, we had those two spaces. And the online shop, quite honestly, was just there as like, you have to have an online shop, you know? <laughs> like, Otherwise, well, no one takes you seriously. That's what you do. <laughs> like, you need a link on your Instagram bio that goes somewhere. <laughs> People need to trust that you have an online shop for some reason. We put no effort into it at all. <laughs> it was just there. We would maybe get a couple of sales a month. It would take us by surprise. <laughs> well, someone uses the internet to order something. <laughs> yes, and it was it was all run through the watershed. So Mubina, who was running the watershed at the time, was there, and it was all run through there. So if something sold online, it was what she had in store, and then she would ship it off. We didn't really have much of a process going. She was managing the whole thing. And the first time that we really sort of realized the power of e-commerce was just before lockdown. I think it was August or September, and it was when Meghan Markle was here. Yes, and she wore one of your dresses. Yes. It's something I want to chat to you about. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Anna, that moment, I need to know. What did it feel like? I was sitting in a workshop at the waterfront at whatever's above the watershed, that workshop space. Workshop and 17. all of a sudden, my phone just started going... Zzz, 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 zzz. <laughs> I was like, what is happening? And it was mad. It was a mad time because... We weren't like some of the other brands, like I think Pishalik also had something worn and Pishalik's online shop was really like quite established and doing very well. Ours was, as I've said, like we used it, but it really, we really just weren't doing it that well. I had only just hired a social media person that was also the manager at Parkhurst and she was doing more on social media. So we were starting to get there. Um, but she wore a dress and unfortunately... She picked a dress that was like one of our pieces that was a limited edition. No. <laughs> and really, like, yes, the whole world is seeing it, but we only have one. <laughs> so funny. Like our whole range is in neutrals. We buy our fabric in bulk so that we don't run into these problems. And this was, we had gone through this whole period where I was like, we're wasting too much. There's fabric sitting in our studio that is from old runs and we're not using anymore and we really only use four fabrics in our range but we just need to get rid of this fabric that we have sitting around and it was that it was literally called the tensel dress because it was made out of the tensel that we had left over from a previous style no that is just too much 
<laughs> so I'm just so curious, like, how did the dress end up with her? Like, what was that her process? Her shopper just arrived, like, a month before her and just shopped at the watershed. And she chose that dress? Yeah. <laughs> it seems like she just did, went to around you know? the watershed. No. Did you know that she was going to wear the no, dress? No, she had, no, we had no, I don't have any other, the other designers had any idea, but we didn't. So when we saw the dress, we weren't tagged in the beginning. It was just on some post and we saw it and we were 99% sure it was ours. But it is also a white shirt dress. <laughs> so we needed to make 100% sure before we started advertising, here's our dress for Meghan Markle. And then we'd find out some other person would be like, no, it's ours. <laughs> so then we actually went scouring through our point of sale system at the watershed and then found the person that was like somebody at... UK Royals, whatever, dot .gov or something. And you're like, this is official. <laughs> and she had bought a tensile shirt dress. And then we emailed her and she was like, yes, it's yours, 100%. So we didn't know until that moment. We hadn't been told, we hadn't been informed. But then the whole of America wanted to buy that dress. <laughs> <laughs> so please tell me that you did produce in some way or form. <laughs> we did. Five million others. <laughs> we did. We produced as many as we could, but tensile is very hard to get in South Africa. But we did. We produced a lot. And that was the first time that, I mean, we, you could have seen the sales from one month to the next. <laughs> really? <laughs> and our online store was mad. You did see a crazy amount. A crazy amount. We had photos back then from when Mabina was still doing it all from the watershed. And the whole floor in our little shop at the watershed would be covered in online orders going off to... Really? All over the world, yeah. That is incredible. It's really, to be totally honest, because South Africa is not a very, like, big celebrity culture, I just don't think that we have the celebrity culture that we do in America and in England, I suppose America the most. I just never really believed in it. I just never really believed the power of the celebrity before this. Um yeah, it was shocking to me how much people just wanted it from all over the world. But it's so funny, like, South Africans don't have that. Like, we weren't getting one million orders from South Africa because Meghan Markle wore the dress. We really weren't, which I love South Africa for that. <laughs> do you, in general, ship a lot abroad? Like, do you export, do you have any stockists outside of South Africa? Or do you mainly sell to people coming to South Africa and South Africans? Yeah, uh, the vast majority is local. Okay. It really um, is. Do you stock any stores? You did mention that you obviously have your own store and that you have your own standalone and online. Do you stock anyone else or is it purely through you? So in the past, we have struggled with capacity. We haven't been able to stock many stores. We do stock a few stores in Cape Town and then Convoy in Joburg, which we were part of sort of setting up Convoy in Joburg. So I feel like an affinity to it. Um, but we've recently, only in the last year, sort of been able to increase our capacity quite a lot to be able to wholesale to different shops around South Africa. And we have just started taking on some big international wholesale orders as well. Okay, wow. It's quite exciting. Because we were at the watershed, the watershed had so many different international clients, so those clients will still sometimes buy from us online. But our focus has really been local and our three-year plan is to start pushing big internationally. Yeah. So you obviously have quite a community that supports you and that likes seeing you dance in the reels in the studio and all the rest. <laughs> <laughs> what part do you think social media plays in small businesses today? Obviously, social media wasn't around the way it is now when you started. But mm. do you guys, like with Ecom, feel like you've shifted a bit like internally from a marketing point of view like to your social media and how do you approach that well I mean we did a massive shift I think what you're saying about learning from within your staff I've learned so much from my staff about social media I think partly because they're all very interesting but also because they're maybe a bit younger than me <laughs> <laughs> but we had 
social media manager, Tyler, who used to be the manager at Parkhurst. And she taught me a lot about the power of social media. And she was so strict on authenticity. If I ever said anything that was not me, she'd be like, I know why you're saying that. Or no, don't claim that. She was a very big part of our sort of brainstorming in lockdown. And she helped us really look at who we are in terms of sustainability. We no longer use the word sustainability or sustainable in our branding because it's just such a loaded term. We do what we can where we can, but we're not at the point that we can claim that. Anyway, um, we've learned so much. And then also just like the rest of the team is just excited about social media in their own ways. And during lockdown, we realized that we had to make a shift. And that shift was terrifying for me because they were all in full agreement that it required (laughs) (laughs) me showing myself which I have done and it has been incredibly liberating for me. I have actually really enjoyed it and I really enjoy it now. But it's also been so valuable for e-commerce, crazy valuable because people actually want to see what clothing looks like in real life. And also it's part of that whole thing. Like I was saying we don't take clothing too seriously, but then we're too scared to go and actually make it not serious. And making it not serious requires us going and actually showing ourselves in a non-serious fashion going, this doesn't look good on me. This does look good on me. This is why. <laughs> this, is, this is the size of this. And this is the size of this. And this is how tall I am. And this is what I like. So that was a huge shift. And now it's so fun because even the rest of my team is keen to get involved. It's made it not as scary, you know. But social media, to answer the question, I think it's become like the other hand with the handhold between e-commerce and social media. I don't think you can do the one without the other. Well, that's a beautiful way of actually putting it. If I think back and I look back at kind of the journey of the Pretty Blog and when we started in 2010, I remember having to explain to my grandmother what a blog is and she used to say, she's Afrikaans, so she's like, do I block? You know, and I was like, it's not a block, it's a blog. But just the journey that we've seen with social media and how it's actually enabled us, I think, in some way, depending on how you use it, I'd phrase it in that way, enables you to actually be more human and actually show that human side of what the business really is. Because it is quite serious. Like you say, like Mm. running a business is serious. It's about you've got people's lives at risk, really, Mm. because they work for you and you need to pay their salaries and keep things going and keep the doors open. And you need to make money and you need to keep growing, etc. But then there's also the human element behind it, like the realness of day-to-day struggles and Mm. Like, not everyone has a good day every single day, and maybe we don't publicize that. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we should. (laughs) Like you say, the fun moments. And I must admit, for me, being quite a serious person, it's also not always easy. I think I don't take myself that seriously, but I do do things very seriously. Mm-hmm. And I know Jess, like, um, <laughs> that is doing the sound recording for us and laughing behind her computer now. She's always saying, Christine, you need to make like a video for us. Like, people <laughs> like that type of thing. And I'm like, no, Jess, just put on something nice, you know. <laughs> but it's true. People want to see people. Yeah. They want to see that there's realness behind what you do. And I think that's what people respond to. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's similar to how I was saying, like, my business, we tried so long to be taken seriously and then now we're trying to not be serious. I do think social media has had that arc as well. Like, in the beginning, the influencers were the ones that had the perfectly curated feed or whatever and now we've moved all the way to TikTok which is like the funnier you are the better. Are you guys on TikTok? (laughs) Not yet. (laughs) (laughs) When when that pops up then I'm like I'm out like I'm too old. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. I like I mean I like some of it that it's just fun. People are having fun. If I look around the TikTok in South Africa people are hilarious. Definitely. You talk a lot about your inquisitiveness about like how people respond. I think it's such a tactile thing to wear clothing and working with women and body types. And I think there's very few, if ever, people that are super happy with their body. And you need to (laughs) and you need to clothe them and make them feel fabulous. Yeah, just tell me a little bit about like what are the things that you've discovered? like tapping into the people that really wear your clothes. Maybe some stories of... Yeah, I mean, I remember when I first started selling clothing, it hit me like a ton of bricks because I was also young and probably quite confident in my body. Just 
was amazing to me. The like vast array of issues that women can make up about their bodies, which is, I mean, not makeup, has been told what's <laughs> wrong with their bodies. Like, it was shocking to me how many people didn't like their knees. And I had never thought of knees as like an issue in any way. <laughs> They're just knees. <laughs> um, but people do, and I do, and being more aware of my own thoughts. It's amazing how many unkind words you say about yourself in a day and how many of those are about your body. So in order to try and change that narrative, the way that we like to try and think about your body is not by what you want to hide, but by your assets, like what you want to show off. And then you use those to sort of inform your clothing choices. So that's the way that we try and sort of frame it when we're selling to people. Like, what is it that you like on your body? And then these are the garments that will show those off. And like change the focus. Yes, change the focus. And by way of showing those off, they almost always sort of then will actually end up hiding the things that you don't. You know, if you have a small waist and a bigger bum, there's certain styles that will just do that for you. <laughs> you know? So that's the way we sort of change that. I know you mentioned somewhere, I can't remember if it was in an article or it was in an interview, you mentioned that there's just no, like, bad bodies, but there's just bad fits. There are no bad bodies, there's just bad fits, absolutely. This is funny. People will come into a store and they will try something on, and if it doesn't look good on them, for some reason, some women, I mean, not for some reason, we will all do this, you'll take yourself and you'll blame yourself instead of blaming the clothes, you know? You'll just take it and you'll be like, oh, no, it's definitely my body. My body is all wrongly shaped. And it shouldn't be that stressful. Like, it shouldn't be that emotional. The blame should never be on you. It should always be on the clothing. Just be like, no, that shirt is not right for me. Let me find one that is. But the moment you get into that sort of tiz of my body isn't right, it like instantly shuts down all of your playfulness with clothing, which is where it should be. You should be just trying things on, seeing if it looks nice, seeing if it doesn't look nice. But we're so terrified of not looking nice that we can't even do that. You know, and I always think it's funny if you listen to men talk about clothing stores. You will have men, it's so funny, you'll have men and they will come in and they'll say, oh yes, but this store has perfect fit. Their fit is perfect universally. And this store has terrible fit. And what they don't realize is that they're just talking individually for themselves. That store has the fit that works well for their bodies. But you never hear them talking about that. They talk about it as this universal truth. Whereas women will talk about it in the opposite way. And we will say, our bodies aren't right, you know. That's so true. Yeah. I never thought of that. <laughs> That's such a good way to look at it. I think we should just... Blame the designers. Absolutely. And, <laughs> and not blame ourselves. Absolutely. And people often get so surprised, and which is why I think these videos have been helpful, is that people will walk in and they will be like, oh, but obviously everything looks nice on you. And I'll say, no, I have a straight body. So all of the things that are designed for hourglass or pear shapes don't look nice on me. And they are part of my range and I designed them. But when I was making them, I didn't try them on me. They look terrible on me. A wrap dress does not look nice on me. A high-waisted pants does not look nice on me. <laughs> a wrap top doesn't usually. This one is good on me. But I mean, usually anything that goes into my waist doesn't look good. And that's okay. I don't need to look good in everything. That's exactly what we were saying earlier. Like, you know, no, it's like, not necessarily for everyone. It's not a one fits all. You've mm. got to pick. And if you go into any store, any designer, try the things on that will work for you. But you cannot expect ever to have every single thing work or everything fit or everything look good. And it's okay. You can put something on, laugh at yourself, don't take it too seriously, and then take it off again. Put something else on. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> so I think what I'm taking from this whole conversation is that there needs to be a balance between serious and unserious. <laughs> oh, yes. Agreed. <laughs> so tapping into the unseriousness, like... Mm -hmm. Who's Hannah at her best? Take us into <laughs> Hannah in the studio, like, on her best day, like. <laughs> oh, dear. What is that? I have no idea. Hannah outside of the studio is on the beach. That is <laughs> her best, near a body of water in the sun. 
Inside the studio, I mean, I think the most fun at the studio is when we've got the sort of whole team there, something hilarious is happening or we're getting a design right, like once we've got a mock-up on and it's very exciting when I'll put it on, Isabel will put it on, Mabina will put it on, my mom will put it on and something looks good on all of us. That's when we know we've got a real winner. It's very exciting and everyone's walking around half naked in there. <laughs> People get so excited because we have a whole bunch of mock-up fabric that'll be like all of the fabric we've never used. So it'll be like red and prints. <laughs> prints. And people will walk in and they'll be like, are you making a print? No, no, it's just a mock-up. <laughs> I never would have thought I'd find a print in, in your studio. Probably won't. <laughs> so what is your most popular product? Is there a design that is stood the test of time that you have made in all shapes and sizes that you've never taken off? There's been quite a few because we don't do these like full ranges all the time. There's quite a lot of products that have been in our range from the beginning almost. Like our morning top, which is just a very basic top, has been in the range as long as I can remember. I actually don't know how long, but very long. One of the styles that is still in the range was the first shoe I ever designed because we were only doing clothing for a long time until we found a shoemaker, which is very exciting. And it was the first shoe that I designed and it's still part of our range and it's still consistently one of the top selling things in our range. Which, which, which fold is over mule. You can go and have a look at it. It's pointy, it's got a little fold over, it's comfortable. It can be sort of like a day shoe, but you can also wear it as a replacement for a heel if you're not a heel person. Yeah, it's still there. <laughs> I don't think it'll ever go. We just ordered another batch. <laughs> <laughs> Hannah, what is the one product that never saw the day of light? Like, is there maybe like a little heap of products that I've never seen in day of light? So Take many. us into the back <laughs> office, <laughs> into the little dark room that no one's allowed to visit. There are a lot. Because I design while making the pattern, sometimes I will make things and it'll be amazing in my head and I put it on and it is just awful. There are so many things that we will make, I'll put it on and they go straight into the bin. <laughs> so many things. But then also some of those products are very clearly wrong. And then sometimes I will just be like too busy or my head will have gotten confused. I've been designing for too many days. And I get to this point where I will put something on or we'll see it sort of made up. And I've been in that space too much in my head and I cannot for the life of me tell whether or not it's ugly or beautiful. I just can't. I've like lost all ability to tell. <laughs> and then that just gets put away. And then quite often we'll actually like bring those things out a year later when we're doing a next range and I'll be going through patterns and I'll find, oh, this is a sample I haven't tried on in a while, put it on. And then it'll come in a year or two later. Is there anything in that stash that's been put in the bin that you want to tell us what it looked like really like just shock us with something that you did think is going to work and you probably just laughed all the way is there an item like that uh, <laughs> everything's perfect <laughs> and beautiful no absolutely not <laughs> it's just that the moment is usually so quick um I mean, there have been things that have actually hit the stores and then we've had to be like, oh dear, we got that horribly wrong. There was one jumpsuit that we put into the range that had like a beautiful sort of cowled back that had a little stud that would hold it closed. And I think eventually we just pulled them all and gave them away. Because... <laughs> We just had gotten it so incredibly wrong. The elastic was either too tight and then we got it too loose. So everyone just looked a bit weird. It cut everybody in a weird place where you just look sort of tweedledee, tweedledumish. I, I don't know why. <laughs> and also every single time you leaned forward, typed on your computer, that button would just pop automatically. <laughs> it was a disaster and we just pulled them all and I think we just... Never did it again. That's not the outfit you wear to your first date, right? <laughs> no. I mean, shoes I find incredibly difficult because you can't make mock-ups, you know? So you just, like, have an idea and then I try and draw it for my shoemaker <laughs> and then make it. And some of those have been real lookers, really. <laughs> it's awful. I'd love to visit the studio to see You those. have to see them. If I had to describe it, it would probably sound quite nice. It's like a square-toed and white mule with a buckle. But when you see it in person, it's awful. Really quite something. <laughs> <laughs> what is your current obsession? 
Mm. Chicken wings. <laughs> <laughs> Now I'm curious. <laughs> oh, been a like deep deep fried food. or like a, a, a fried? peri peri chicken recipe. <laughs> 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 okay. Um, on that topic, what did you have for dinner last night? <laughs> chicken wings. <laughs> What is your freezer filled with chicken wings? <laughs> <laughs> so now, what do you have your chicken wings with? Like, what comes with the chicken wings? Last night we had it with broccoli and something else, but usually with like chips, not very healthy, or salad. But the main event is the chicken wings. <laughs> Okay, we should have a chicken wing party. I'm also into chicken wings. <laughs> and it was so lovely to tap into your process and understand the, the cocooning journey. <laughs> to also allow yourself to be who you are, to process and not necessarily be like all the other creatives out there. Thank you for sharing that journey and the story and being very honest and real about what you've experienced. And we're looking forward to following your journey and seeing the little dancers in the studio. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. This has been fun. If you're enjoying Behind the Edit, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen and don't forget to leave a review. For those who are curious, Behind the Edit is part of a larger drive to uplift our local design industry and sister company to The Pretty Blog. If you'd like to follow what we're building, please visit thelocaledit.com and sign up to stay in the know. And as always, please keep spreading the local love on social media by following and tagging The Local Edit on Instagram. I'm Christine Mankies and you're listening to Behind the Edit.